Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. Welcome, everybody. I'm so glad you're here. It's good to be back. Uh, Our family was away with Pastor Tyler uh, last week. And uh, as you look around the room, I just want to draw attention to the fact that our attendance is light, okay? And I want to draw attention to that because every once in a while, Pastor Tyler and I, the last few weeks, someone will come up and be like, hey, uh, are we okay? And (laughs) in like this real like, is our church dying kind of is the subtext. And, uh, and I just want you to rest assured our church is doing just fine. And uh, we are living through together this, still this odd reality that none of us have lived through before, where we are coming out of now a global pandemic. No one has been able to travel or do anything for a year. And summer is here and people rightfully are taking the opportunity to travel as much as possible. And I just want to say as the pastor of this church, if you can travel and get away, do it. Our church will be fine. Fall will come back when it's just when everybody comes back to church. But if you can be away, we just got to be away for a week. It's very healing after the experience that we've all been walking through together. So I want you to know two things. One, uh, it's, it's okay to travel and we're okay as a church. You're not gonna show up next week and there's like a sign on the door that we're not here anymore. We'll be here every week, even if it's like me and Tyler and Tammy, okay? And then, then secondly, what I do want to say is that for those of us who are here week after week throughout the summer, I really want to encourage you to lean in during this time. Because even if the room is not filled with people, it is filled with God's spirit. And he's here and he wants to speak to us and he wants to move on us and he wants to work in each of our hearts. And that's true this morning as well. So I'm glad to be back. I'm glad that you're here, and uh, I believe it's going to be a great Sunday for us. Uh, next week, I do want you to know, we are going to be starting a brand new teaching series. And as I've been praying about kind of where we have been uh, and the condition that uh, I find myself in and so many of us, I've, I find this theme running through so many conversations that I have right now, and it's this theme of discouragement. It's got a lot of different faces, uh, and it takes a lot of different forms, but by and large, a lot of people are really wrestling with varying degrees of discouragement. And so as I've been thinking and praying about that and wondering, like, what would be the best place for us to spend our summer teaching-wise in light of that, I keep coming back to the book of Philippians, which if you don't know anything about it, it's one of the Apostle Paul's greatest letters, and his primary intent is to encourage discouraged Christians. And he doesn't write it from like a beach in Tahiti where his life is like going amazing. He penned this letter from prison. And he still writes about joy as one of the most dominant themes throughout this great letter. And so this next Sunday at 10 a.m., we're going to start a new series verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Philippians called Dear Discouraged. And I think it's going to be a great time. So as you travel and as you're away, make sure you keep up with the podcast or you watch the live stream uh, so that we can all stay united even as we're taking an opportunity to be away and to travel. All right, so let me pray because this morning uh, we are going to finish up uh, Fiercely Feminine and I'm going to talk a little bit about that in just a second. But why don't we just pray one more time. So would you bow your heads with me? Father, 
Thank you for each of these people who are here in this room right now. Thank you for those who are at home and watching online. Thank you for those who will listen to this at some other point uh, via the podcast. And I thank you, God, that regardless of where we are and when we listen, that your spirit is with us and that your spirit desires to speak through your word. And so I ask for humble hearts, for open ears, and that we would hear and receive what you want to say to us today because we need to hear your voice. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I just mentioned this morning, we are coming to the conclusion of this series that we have called Fiercely Feminine. And as I've been reflecting on the past few months and everything that I've learned in studying for this series and and everything I hope we've all learned together, I was really struck by how much I've enjoyed teaching this series. You know, I was thinking about it and I've I've been preaching roughly 40 to 45 new messages every year since 2009. I'm not super great at math, but I think that's somewhere around like 500 messages. And I've probably done close to, I was doing the math this week, I've done close to 80 different teaching series in that time. And I mention that because I really think that this series, Fiercely Feminine, may have ended up being my single favorite series that I've had the privilege to teach. And I think the reason that It's been my favorite is that it's just so expanded my understanding of God and his good plans for all of us. And so before we dive into this last message of this series, I just want to kind of circle back on what it is exactly that inspired this series. Modern Christianity has a non-biblical tendency to reduce gender roles in general and femininity in particular in an overly simplistic manner. And so what we do is we reduce what it looks like to be a quote-unquote biblical woman down to this one expression of biblical femininity. But what I hope has become more and more evident throughout this series is that feminine strength in Scripture has many, many faces and almost endless expressions. Furthermore, the Scriptures are filled with an amazing cast of female characters that are often neglected, but that we can all learn from as both men and women. And this is yet another significant reminder of an almost constant principle that I see in Scripture. And that principle is this. God creates, values, and works through a diverse expression of personalities. Can I say that again? Because it's really important that we internalize and hold on to that. God creates... He values and he works through a diverse expression of personalities. And so even if you're here and you're like, well, I'm not not really sure that's true of me. I don't don't speak. I don't sing. uh, I don't really lead. I don't teach in any capacity. I'm not like super charismatic and extroverted. I'm just not sure if that's me. But you know what scripture teaches us is that God engages and uses all who are willing. That's like the singular requirement to engage with God and to be used by him is just sheer willingness. God creates, he values, and he works through a diverse expression of personalities. And this morning, we're going to see yet another reminder of this truth in the example of two women named Naomi and Ruth. The book of Ruth, if you haven't had the opportunity to be able to read it, it stands as this sobering but encouraging reminder that even through seasons of immense suffering, even though they make it very hard for us to see God's good hand, he is still working in the midst of it 
to accomplish his good plan. And so if you think about it, suffering in life can be like, kind of like trying to see clearly in the midst of a smoke-filled room. So years ago, when I was a worship leader, uh, I was privileged to be part of a live recording. And, uh, and at the time, I was a part of a church that was far more uh, production-oriented than what we are here at Ridgeline. And so we had like full concert sound and lighting for this thing. It was just this whole spectacle. And, and for all of this stage lighting to have its full effect, the guy who was leading the recording also decided to rent Uh, much to my uh, now embarrassment, he rented a, I'm ashamed to say that he rented a smoke machine, okay? So for a worship, I just feel like worship and smoke machine just do not need to go together at this point in my life. But at this point, it wasn't my rodeo that I was running. And so we had this smoke machine. Now the problem was somebody cranked this smoke machine like way too high. And so I was waiting in the wings just off of the stage, getting ready to come on, and the smoke was so thick, I could barely breathe. And, and even more concerning than, than that, I was just so worried that I was going like, to come walking onto stage trying to get through this smoke, and I was going to trip over a critical cable and somehow bring this entire recording to a screeching stop in one step. That did not happen, by the way. I'm thankful to report that. But my point is, suffering is kind of like trying to see clearly in a smoke-filled room. See, suffering has a way of suffocating our visibility. It's disorienting and confusing. And in the same way, crisis, trials, seasons of suffering, seasons of difficulty and pain, they're like smoke. Spiritually speaking, they suffocate our visibility. They make it difficult, sometimes impossible, to see what God's doing. And furthermore, pain not only suffocates our view of God's plan for us, but also the very property of his character. And by that I mean that suffering, like smoke, has a tendency to suffocate our view of who God is and what God is actually like. And so the book of Ruth is a story of two women surrounded by the smoke of suffering, loss, and disappointment. And it's the story of the one true God working in and through that smoke to bring about his good and perfect plan. See, Ruth is a picture of God's providence. And as Denise Uh, so articulately described a few weeks ago, God's providence is his constant work to guard, guide, and govern all things to somehow accomplish his good plan and purposes. Now, the good news is God's providence isn't just working in the story of Ruth. The reality of God's providence is true in your life and in mine. God is working in every situation in every circumstance, and in every season for the purpose of accomplishing his perfect plan. The problem is, sometimes we can't see it. And that's really hard. And so this morning, I want us to learn a little bit more about these two women and what they did with this season of suffering that they found themselves in. And so if you have a Bible or a mobile app that you like to read on, do me a favor and open to Ruth chapter one. That's where we're going to spend our time together this morning. Uh, We're going to call this Naomi and Ruth, the enduring. 
And while you're turning to Ruth chapter one, I want you to remember that the Bible is not actually one book. Yes, we have it bound together like this into one volume, but the Bible is actually 66 different books written by somewhere around 40 different authors um, over a time period of about 1,500 years. And one thing that can make the Bible kind of confusing for us when we read it is when we don't recognize the specific genre that we might be reading in a particular book of the Bible. And so for the sake of understanding that, I want you to know that Ruth is a historical short story, and it is a masterful one at that. It has a very clear beginning and a middle and an end. It has sacrifice and romance and a surprise ending. And like all good stories, it centers around a particular crisis. And we find that as we open to the first verse. So read with me, Ruth chapter one, beginning in verse one, it starts like this. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. So, bless you. There's, only, there's a few of us now that I can just say that, and it's, we can just interact. It'll be great, okay? Also, you don't have to sit all the way in the back anymore if you don't want to. You can come down here and not pretend like I'm diseased, okay? I don't have COVID. I'm vaccinated. This is a safe space for you to come and inhabit with me, okay? All right, listen. As I said, every compelling story starts with a crisis, And Ruth is actually the story of one family's crisis set against the backdrop of a nation in crisis. Now, verse 1 places this during the time of the judges. We've talked about this a little bit over the last few weeks, but if you're not familiar with Israel's history, you should know that these were not good days for Israel. They were days that were marked by spiritual, political, even economic crisis and instability. And the book that comes in our Bibles just before Ruth is the book called Judges, and it contains the most concentrated history of this time. And uh, if you look back just one page in your Bible, Judges actually ends on a very ominous note. Judges 21-25, the very last verse in the book of Judges before Ruth chapter 1, it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. So because Israel had rejected God and had no king to lead them, they were in absolute disarray. Israel needed a godly king to unite them and to lead them back to God. And Ruth is the story of God providing that king through very tragic circumstances. And so our story starts with this man, Elimelech, and his seemingly insignificant family leaving Bethlehem because of a famine that had struck there and heading around the Dead Sea about 50 miles to the region of Moab. Now, what you need to know about Moab is that Moab and Israel were long enemies. 
The Moabites, historically, were the byproduct of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter. You can read that disturbing story in Genesis chapter 19, specifically verses 30 to 38. Now, the Moabites were known for their idol worship, and from the moment they're introduced in Scripture, there is near constant and bloody conflict between Moab and Israel. And because of this, some scholars actually speculate that Elimelech's decision to take his family from Bethlehem to Moab is actually a a sign or a demonstration of his own rebellion against God. But regardless of Elimelech's motive, God was at work behind the scenes, as he always is. He was working in and through this decision. And furthermore, the famine that results in this family leaving their home to inhabit a foreign place, that's not the only crisis in these opening verses. Because just shortly after their move, Elimelech dies. And in this culture, a husband's death was not only emotionally devastating, uh, the way that we would expect it to be for any wife, but it was also a very dangerous one because it left her very vulnerable. In this highly patriarchal culture, women unfortunately had nothing apart from their husbands. But the good news was that Naomi was left with two sons to carry on the family name and to provide her with security. And so Naomi's sons marry two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. The bad news is both of those sons also tragically die prior to ever having children with their new wives. And so at the end of verse 5, we're left with Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, and they have nothing. And so I want you for a second just to put yourself in Naomi's shoes. She's living in a foreign and at least somewhat hostile land. She has now no husband and no sons, which meant no future for her. And so Naomi's entire life is in absolute shambles. And I think it's probably safe to say that Naomi's crisis is most likely not your crisis or mine. But at some point in all of our lives, we can all relate to Naomi because we all walk through crisis. And so I wonder this morning what crisis you might be facing right now. Maybe it's financial in nature. Maybe it's something relational in your marriage, in an important friendship or relationship where there is tension or conflict. Maybe it's something emotional or mental. There's an immense amount of emotional mental health struggle happening globally right now. So maybe it's that. Maybe it's something physical in your actual body that is not functioning the way that it's supposed to, and you're not sure what to do with that. I want you to take a second, and I want you to recognize and name your crisis. And the truth is, it might feel comparatively small to what Naomi experienced, but my guess is the size of it doesn't diminish the discomfort of it. And so I want you to name your crisis, And I want you to notice in the remainder of our text how crisis creates a very specific opportunity for all of us. Look with me at verse 6. The story goes on and it says, She, so Naomi and her daughters-in-law, set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. 
She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. They said to her, we we insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And again, they wept loudly and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. So somehow in Moab, Naomi catches wind that God had listened to and heard the cries of his people and had lifted this famine in Bethlehem. And so as a result, Naomi decides that it's time to head home, but she leaves a shell of the woman that she was when she arrived. Again, she has nothing at this point except her two daughters-in-law. And recognizing what coming with her would mean for them, Naomi quickly has this change of heart, and she pleads with these two young women to head back to their home. And this was genuinely an act of love on Naomi's part and kindness and compassion. Because again, to be a widow with no husband and no children was to have no rights, to have no land, to have no hope of a future. And so Naomi recognized the kindness that these women had shown her and her boys, and she wanted more for them. And so she tells them to go home so that they have hope of finding new husbands and a real future for themselves. And at first, both Orpah and Ruth insist on returning with her. But when Naomi pushes harder, Orpah decides to go back home. But Ruth seizes the opportunity that this crisis created. Look at verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. So bound up, this is such a significant demonstration of love and compassion and loyalty on on behalf of Ruth. And bound up in her very kind declaration is this commitment to trust and to serve Naomi's God in the face of the very crisis that he himself had allowed. And so I want you to think about what this choice would have meant for Ruth. I mean, Ruth, remember, was from Moab, a sworn enemy of Israel. Furthermore, Ruth had grown up worshiping false gods. Ruth was an outsider choosing to embrace this entirely new way of life out of love for and allegiance to Naomi. And so on paper, Ruth's decision makes absolutely no sense. But there was something in the crisis that caused her to trust her heart and life 
in service to the one true God of Israel and to relationship with Naomi. And sadly, chapter one closes with this very sobering description of just how deeply Naomi had been damaged by the trauma that she experienced. Look at verse 19. It says, the two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival. And the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, she answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. All right, so remember, uh, at this point, Naomi has been gone about 10 years. And so the reaction from this village of Bethlehem upon her return is entirely understandable. They were excited to see her come home. Like, just think about this. Due to COVID, some of us are just now getting the opportunity to see loved ones for the first time in over a year. And so think about if you've had that experience of seeing a parent or a sibling or a family member or a friend that you have not seen for over a year. Think about how healing it's been to reconnect with those loved ones after a mere year. So imagine 10 years of not seeing these people. So their excitement to see Naomi makes sense. But the women's question in verse 19 signals that Naomi has lost something beyond Elimelech and her sons. These local women ask themselves and one another, man, can this be Naomi? Something about her was visibly different. And she tells them exactly what it is. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And here's why that is so tragic. The name Naomi means pleasant, where the name Mara means bitter. And in far more, far, far, far more than in our own culture, names hold tremendous significance in scripture. They often tell us something about a person's personality and their purpose in life. And so how heartbreaking is it that inside of this first chapter, we've watched a decade of loss turn Naomi the pleasant into Mara the bitter. She is a shell of her former self. It's evident to her and it's evident to these women who come out to welcome her home. And unfortunately, we don't have time to read the entirety of this book, but I do want to just highlight three lessons I think we learned from this opening chapter and from the example of Naomi and Ruth. The first lesson is this. Number one, bitterness blinds. Bitterness blinds. Naomi's pain, suffering, and hopelessness all of them, I want to make this super clear, everything that she's experiencing and feeling, the state that she's in, all of it is understandable. In fact, you know, the question underlying the entire book of Ruth is this question, where is God in all of this? You want to know what the book's about? It's about that. It's the answer to that question. Where is God in all of this? Naomi, understandably, is asking, man, where was God in the midst of the famine? Where was God in this foreign land that we were led to? 
Where was God in the death of my husband? Where was God in the death of my sons? Where is God in the hopelessness of my future? And listen, I want you to hear this. Those are very valid questions. And so rather than look at Naomi as this example of faithlessness, we should look at Naomi as an example of the normality of wrestling with God. Every honest Christian at some point is going to ask themselves where God is in the wake of their own suffering. But here's what we have to be so careful of. Bitterness is what grows when we harbor our hurt. Bitterness is what grows in our hearts and grows in our minds and grows in our bodies, research will tell us, when we harbor hurt. You know, one of the pictures that comes to mind for me when I think about the effects of harboring hurt is uh, Smeagol's transformation to Gollum in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. So if you're not a nerd and therefore not familiar with this story, let me just break this down for you. Uh, Smeagol was at, at the beginning this very happy and healthy hobbit, and he finds the one ring of power, and it slowly poisons him as he orders his entire life around protecting his precious, as he calls it. And so the longer that he protects this ring, the more he loses any connection to who he was, and he becomes this dark, miserable monster. And bitterness, when it is unchecked, has a similar effect on our souls, and here's why. Bitterness blinds us to God's comforting presence in our pain. That's the effect that it has. Bitterness blinds us to God's healing, comforting presence in our pain. See, Naomi's understanding of God, when you read at the end all of these statements that she's making about God, she's making deeply theological statements. And her theology, her understanding of God, is like a good 50% correct. Naomi was entirely right about God's hand being sovereign over her crisis. What she was wrong about was his heart in the midst of it. She believed that God was afflicting her, that God was robbing her of her husband, robbing her of her sons, robbing her of her future. But you know that the opposite was actually true. And what it reveals to us, what her statements reveal to us is that she had a habit, like many of us, to have an over-realized understanding of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is the uh, theological conviction that God is in control of all things that happens in this world. But, but Naomi had an over-realized, what I would call an over-realized sense of God's sovereignty. She was seeing God as this uncaring puppet master pulling the strings in her life in order to cause her pain. But here's the thing. To believe that God dictates Every detail in life is to make him a despot. The scriptures teach that two things are true. Number one, somehow God is in control of everything that happens in life, ensuring that human history moves toward his good plan to redeem all things. That's number one. 
But the other thing that scripture says is that the world is broken and people are free to make choices. And so I don't know, no one knows, there's so many books, so many sermons, so much teaching, trying to perfectly reconcile these two truths in scripture. And I'm just here to tell you, read them, listen to them, they're great. No one can perfectly reconcile these two truths. But what I do know is that hanging everything that happens on God's neck is not faithful to who he is in scripture, and it will leave us bitter toward him rather than comforted by him. And so if like Naomi, you're in a season of suffering, maybe even feeling bitter toward God due to something that he's allowed in your life, I want to invite you to follow her example and to take that bitterness to him rather than just holding on to it in your heart. You know, the happy ending to this story is that Naomi doesn't die bitter because that'd be like super depressing end to this story. She just dies a bitter old hag. But thankfully, that's not what happens. God redeems her bitterness and her pain. See, if you don't know the story, Ruth is going to go on to marry a good and noble man named Boaz. And they're going to have a son. And that son's name was Obed. And Obed, because of the way that their culture functioned and worked, not only preserves Naomi's future that she thought at one time was completely lost, but it also, he brings joy back to her life. And even more importantly than that, from a historical sense and in our lives, is that Obed would become the father of David. And David would be a forerunner to Jesus and the greatest king in Israel's history. God had not abandoned Naomi, and God has not abandoned you. So do not allow your bitterness to blind you. A second lesson that we learn from these two women is this. Loyalty matters. Loyalty matters. Ruth's decision, again, to stay with Naomi is significant. Because again, on on paper, it really didn't make any sense. On paper, when you look at, when you're evaluating, like if, if, if Ruth had come to me for counsel on this decision, I would not have counseled her to do what she did. Because from a a human, earthly, fleshly vantage point, it just genuinely makes no sense. Again, Naomi worshipped a different god than her. Naomi was, was a part of a rival people group. Naomi had nothing to offer her at this point in her life. And despite all of that, Ruth chose sacrificial love over convenience and comfort. And in light of this, I think it's worth reflecting on our own loyalty to those in our lives. Because I think if we're honest, we have to admit that we tend to move toward relationships that are beneficial to us in some way, and we shy away from any that require too much sacrifice from us. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about staying in relationships that are toxic or destructive. You should not remain loyal to a relationship that is abusive. Clear? Because sometimes there's lots of very destructive sub-biblical teaching that because we're Christians, we should stay in abusive relationships. There's no Bible to back that. So I'm not arguing for staying in abusive relationships of any kind. 
But we do have to be careful not to confuse every relationship that is simply inconvenient with being toxic. Jesus runs toward us in our worst moments, and we should do the same for one another. As Christians, we should strive to walk both through life's ups and downs together, through joy and pain together, regardless of whether or not it's comfortable for us or convenient for us. We should fight to remain committed because loyalty matters. And that leads directly to the last lesson for today. Number three is that friendship heals. Friendship heals. One constant throughout this story is the relationship between Naomi and Ruth. And two things are true about these women. Number one, both Naomi and Ruth experienced almost unimaginable pain. And number two, they walked through it all together. And that friendship was a key factor that resulted in their healing. And so again, not everything that Naomi espouses about God in the midst of her suffering is accurate. That's important, okay? If all you had was Ruth 1 and you were going to build your theology about who God is off of what Naomi says, you need to know, not just because it's like all the Bible's doing is recording what she said. It's not affirming that everything that Naomi says is accurate and true about him. And so even though not everything she says in the midst of her suffering about God is accurate, I would say at least she was honest. And that's a really big deal. She was honest with Orpah and Ruth. She was honest with her friends when she returns back to Judah. And I would argue that the best decision that Naomi and Ruth make in their pain is their joint decision to walk through it together. And so I want to ask you, who are you walking through your crisis with? Are you isolated in it? Or are you talking openly and honestly with somebody about it? And I want you to know, especially if, if, if at this very moment, you're pretty isolated and closed off in the midst of whatever crisis you're feeling, I want you to know, I understand how scary the challenge and invitation is to like step into the open with people about that. I understand that it's scary. I also know that when you're exhausted in the midst of your crisis, that to open up to others about it feels like more work. But I can also tell you from experience that there's no healing in isolation. God created us for community. And so I want you to really hear this, that, that if worst case you feel like you don't have someone that you can open up with about whatever particular crisis you're walking through, then let's set up a time for you to meet with me because I'd love to chat with you because friendship heals. So let me just close with this. It's probably the most important big idea that I would argue that comes out of the entire story of Ruth altogether. And it's this crisis creates an opportunity to trust God. Crisis creates an opportunity to trust God. And I want to just clarify that for a second here as we close, because on the one hand, that sounds so painfully trite and cheesy. It sounds like one of the dumb things that Christians say and put on coffee mugs and bumper stickers. We say a lot of dumb stuff and suffering. Read the book of Job. The whole book is a bunch of dumb stuff three guys are saying to a guy who's suffering. 
So it's not new, it's just like our MO. We just say dumb stuff when other people suffer. And so I, I want to just, I don't want you walking away going, our pastor was doing great, and then he just crashed and burned with this really trite big idea. Because it could also sound kind of insensitive as well. All joking aside, there is just so much bad counsel from, I would argue, probably well-meaning Christians in crisis that sounds something like this. Um, I'm so sorry that you're hurting, but you know, if you would just trust God more, you're going to be fine. And there's this subtext that says, trusting God more will eliminate the pain and the struggle. But you know what? Life with God is struggle. And if someone has ever told you something different than that, I am sorry on behalf of God. Life with God is struggle. Trusting God does not mean ignoring your questions and doubts. Trusting God does not mean pretending like the pain isn't real. Trust is the choice to invite God to invade your mess. And so this morning, I want to ask you to do that. In your own heart and mind, even in this moment, why don't you just close your eyes for a second? In your own heart and mind in this moment, I want to ask you to gather up all your pain and gather up all of your confusion that you might be experiencing right now. All of your insecurity, all of your weakness, all of your anger, all of your doubt, and even all of your bitterness. And as you just gather all of that up, I want to ask you to trust God by inviting him in this moment to invade that mess. And I want you to know he is not going to make it magically disappear. But he will comfort you in it. And most importantly, he will accompany you through it. Crisis creates an opportunity to trust. And so let's ask Jesus to invade our mess right now. Jesus, we, we, we do. We ask that you would do that. I ask that you would do that right now. Lord, you know the pain that we live with. You know the suffering we're experiencing. You know the confusion that we feel, the anger, the sadness, the disappointment, the discouragement, the bitterness that we carry because of things that we have experienced, things that we have done, things that have been done to us, things that we, allow, that we know that you have allowed to happen for some reason in our lives. Lord, some of us here probably even believe that you have done harsh, mean things to us. And so like, like Naomi, God, we just acknowledge all of that. We refuse to live under the lie that we can hide any of that from you. And we refuse to bow to the pressure to hide that from one another. And so we just bring it to you this morning. And we thank you that you thank us right now for doing that, that you welcome us into your presence with all of that. 
And so, Lord, I ask that you would invade that mess, that pain, that doubt, that discouragement. All of our hurt, all of our questions, and Lord, more than answers, more than eliminating all of it, more than taking it all away, we just ask that you would sit with us in the midst of it. And I pray, God, that you would overwhelm us now with a sense that you are here, that you are present that even in those moments when we could not find you, like trying to see clearly in a smoke-filled room, you were there, and that you have a plan in the midst of that, that you will bring good out of even the most tragic and terrible things that we experience. And when we can't see it, we will choose to trust you by inviting you to meet us where we are. And so, Lord, this morning, we ask that you would help us to rest in your care. Right now, that we would rest in your love for us and your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen.